What's going on, everyone? Welcome to The Right Now Show. On this show, we like to have super deep and unfiltered conversations with people that inspire us, people that we can learn from. And today we have a really good friend of mine, Jason Kimura. Jason's a military veteran, a therapist, and also a fitness slash life coach. And today we dive really deep into his story, a lot of psychology questions, and let's get right into the show. So what's your, what is your profession exactly? Now? Yeah. It's like a jack of all trade master of probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's, I'm kidding. I've gone from being a clinician of 20 years to focus more on life coaching and mm-hmm. fitness and nutritional coaching. And so I'm kind of putting the three together. Yeah. It's kind of in the early stages of that process. The reason why, because you're probably going to ask, well, why those three things, right? Because life coaching is kind of interesting. Life coaching really is about helping a person achieve a particular goal in life, right? Mm. Whatever that could be, retirement, whatever the process is. Adding those other two elements is the mindset component. So a lot of the times what I find with people, especially when I was doing clinical work, was that it was a lot of about mindset. How does a person perceive a problem and how they sort of address a problem, generally speaking, you know, kind of lends to some kind of predictable outcome to some degree. Makes sense. So you were, you went to school for psychology? Uh, Psychology, yeah. So I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. And you did that for, did you do it in a, you know, doctor's office? So I've kind of been all around. I did a lot of it in public mental health and then eventually into drug and alcohol. Then I got into trauma work. And so then I've gone through a litany of programs from inpatient care Mm -hmm. all the way to outpatient. I worked in private practice before. I've worked in hospital settings before. So I wanted to kind of get a, you know, kind of a mix of what's out there just to kind of see what's best suited for me. And what I found was I really liked the chaos if that makes any sense. So really kind of like early on when people are going through things, that for me really, I don't know, it just, it it drew me in. And it's because I kind of felt like I could make the most impact there by getting them early on when they're struggling with something. So it could be everything from mental health crises where they might've been hospitalized to, you know, you think about trauma work. Uh, A lot of times there's substance abuse related issues around that. So maybe they're abusing substances to numb out that pain and you're working with them in that very raw state to create some Mm. sense of normalcy for them. And it's, it's powerful. Like if you can do it well, it's powerful. If you had to sum up exactly what you do in like one to three sentences, how would you, currently? Yeah. I'm, I'd probably say about helping people focus and reconnect with who they actually are. That hits home. I love that. Who is, Jason Kamora. Oh, great question. And I don't want you to be humble. I want you to just, you know, who are you to the core? And yeah. like, who are you proud to be? A servant of people is the first thing that kind of pops up in my head. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because I really enjoy helping people make change in their life, whether it's through my work that I'm doing now in the past or just in general. I really enjoy what brings me great pleasure and joy is helping people find themselves, connect with themselves, or find other people. Mm. That's another thing I really enjoy is like connecting people. So I I think I'm a person who really is kind of put on this earth to help people find themselves and each other. Yeah. No, I can see it, man. Like even ever since I've known you for the first time you've ever approached me, like you just have like this 
this energy about you, like just vitality. Like you're you're so easy to talk to. Like when I talk to you, you give me like more energy. Yeah. And you definitely have a really big heart. And I know from, you know, the last event that we did, Mission Mindset Adventure, we gave you the nickname of Lionheart. How do you get that nickname? I mean, it's interesting how you guys pick that because it really kind of came from, you know, you guys seeing that in me, that that heart mentality exactly. and having that ability to really connect with people on that level. I love that. I mean, I, I love the nickname, too. It's like mm -hmm. so fitting. It wouldn't Definitely. be something I would think of of myself, but, you know, that's oftentimes hard to do is when you're thinking about who you are and trying to pick out a nickname. I like it when it comes from other people. Yeah. And I also saw a different side of you during that event because mm -hmm. you were so straightforward with everyone. Mm -hmm. Like you told people not exactly what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear in that moment. And have you always been like that? Like where do you get that, that side of you from? It's just who I am. Yeah. Um, I believe in the truth. Mm. And I look at it this way. The people who care about you are going to be real with you. And that's really what it's about. You know, it's not... You know, you don't want to go out being offensive. You don't certainly want to go out and hurt people's feelings or just try to put people down. But sometimes people need the truth. And it's scary. It's hard. It's not always well received. So yeah. it's, I've had lots of backlash with that before in the past. But I won't change that for anything because it's about telling people what they need to hear, maybe not what they want to hear. And timing it in such a way where they can receive it is the really the art. How do you know the right time to do that? And is there a certain person that should be doing that and a certain person that should not be doing that? Like if, are you, obviously you're in the right position because of your background mm -hmm. and just, you know, you're, you're a coach, you're a father, but say uh, someone who's not necessarily, you know, maybe they're younger, they don't have a coaching background, maybe they're in school. Can they still do that to their friends? Oh, absolutely. You think I, so? I don't think it's something unique to me. Yeah. I think it's just having a good feel. So mm. knowing and reading the individual and seeing when it's going to be best delivered. Because it has to be authentic. And so much of society now, and I don't want to get on a, a bandwagon here, but it's yeah. so it's so fake. You mm. know what I mean? And so it's unauthentic. And we've lost our true meaning and purpose, which is to connect to each other. Yep. Yep. You know, and and sometimes connection means you gotta kinda lay it out there a little bit and mm. take some risks to let people know. And it's a feel. Like you can kind of yeah. get a sense when someone can receive it and not. Definitely. What is the strategy you take when do you you're like a therapist, right? Yeah. What's the strategy you take with an individual when they come and approach you for your service? So the first thing I want to do is get to know who they are and what makes them tick in a different way. And what I mean by that is like understanding the way that they see the world. Mm. So they come in and oftentimes it's problem driven. So it's, hey, I'm here to kind of talk about X, Y, and Z, or I'm struggling with this feeling, or I just need somebody to bounce some ideas off, or I need a sounding board because I'm really struggling in this issue. And you want to begin to really recognize what the construct or what sort of the frame in which they see the world. Yeah. So that's the first thing I do is like, teach me about how you see the world, because it's going to be different than mine. I like that. Do you believe in depression? Yes. What if there is someone that said, I mean, not to say that depression isn't real, I'm not saying that, but what yeah. if someone said, like, I have a mindset that I don't believe in depression for me. Like, it's almost like not even possible because of the mindset that I've, I've adapted for myself. Do you agree with that? Or is that kind of just off? 
Yeah. So I've had people say that stuff before. They would see it as like depression as a sign of weakness. Yeah. Um, I've worked with families before where they're like, I don't understand how my son or my daughter or my spouse can be struggling in this way. Why can't they think and feel the way that I do? And yeah. So, you know, the big thing there is, again, understanding their perception mm-hmm. and then working with it to your best of your ability. And so if you have a person who says, look, I don't believe in depression, it's not a real thing to me. The question I'd start to ask is like, why is that important for me to know that about you? You know, why do I need to know that about you? And then tell me how that impacts your life. Because it's an interesting thing to bring up, right? I mean, it's not something people typically would talk about. But if they come in the session and say, look, I, I just don't believe in this. Okay, mm-hmm. well, tell me why you don't believe in it. Yeah. Tell me what are the things that you feel make this thing not real? And then how does that impact you in the world? Because well, not everything needs a resolution. Exactly. But what if I adapted the mindset that it wasn't real? Therefore, it's not real inside my head anymore. Like, can that be? Sure. Yeah. So sure. it's possible to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you recommend for people to do that? Like, how do you view it, like, personally? So depression can be a couple of ways, okay? When we oftentimes use the word depression, most times we're not really depressed, we're sad. We're upset, there's something kind of acute going on in our lives, so, you know, maybe we have a breakup in a relationship or a change in some facet, you know, in our life, and those things bring on those intense emotions, one of which is sadness. Yeah. It becomes depression when it starts to inhibit your ability to function. So mm. when you're not getting out of bed, you're not going to work, you're kind of sitting there in a brain fog, you're, you know, you see this kind of played out in movies, but those are kind of the chief symptoms. And then they have to go on for a period of time, yep. right? So it can't just go on for a month or a few days. It goes on for a period of time where mm. it's really starting to impact a person's life. You know, depression can come on a multitude of ways. Sometimes it's, it's, truly the way in which a person sees a situation yeah. so it's kind of a mindset kind of thing mm-hmm. it can be organic yeah. you know so there is lots of research that talks about you know how people who have depression in their families are more likely to because there's potentially some organicity behind yeah. this as well and then finally a lot of it has to do with what we do and so like one of the things i've been looking at most recently is what happens to people who have this chronic clinical depression that therapy in pharmacology does not treat how are they able to respond or change this as well and we're finding that's happening through diet and exercise yeah so you're obviously seeing this firsthand all the time like yeah. you've seen so many different cases many And do you think the best way to deal with this is, you know, the organic way, the natural ways to deal with this diet, exercise, self-care, maybe it's practicing religion, meditation, spirituality, whatever it is. Do you find that that's the best approach or pumping someone with a drug? The medication's only really designed, okay, to reduce symptoms enough so that you can start to do these other things, whether it be Mm. therapy, exercise, diet, spirituality, and and so on and so forth. So that's all the medication is really designed to do. That's not how it's sold, essentially, out Mm. there in society. So I'm a big fan of doing things naturally first. Yes. It has the lowest risk. Definitely. And if you look at all the new, and there's a really good book out called, I think it's Brain Energy, It's about this doctor who in Harvard Medical School has been studying mental health conditions for over two decades now. And what he's found in his clinic is that people who have these longstanding 
diagnoses of depression or anxiety or other mental health issues, he's starting to find some correlation of metabolic syndrome, meaning that it's what they're eating and the lack of exercise is really what's causing this. Mm. So no medication has ever worked for them. No therapy has ever worked for them because for that particular group of people, it's more biological. Yeah. So I do agree starting there, it has the lowest risk and it's the easiest thing to do. Now, let me caveat that. It's easy when you're not depressed, or I should say it's easier when you're not depressed because let's face it, if your doctor writes you a prescription of exercising, going, eating better, you know as well as I do because we both work out. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to be consistent. Sure. <clears throat> now, imagine being depressed and being told that. So therein lies some of the hiccups, and that's where I think a life coach comes into play where it helps to bridge that gap. You begin that process of you're almost like an accountability buddy literally yeah yeah so so that's what i that's kind of why i'm blending those two together but i do agree start there first i do believe that there are some people who may benefit from medication but i don't think it's the first place we should start definitely now if someone is listening and they're struggling with depression or they think they are what's like step-by-step approach to curing themselves? So first of all, if they recognize that they may be suffering from depression, awesome. That's a great first step because just recognizing that or acknowledging that and not trying to hide it is a great place because that's where change really starts is in accepting the fact that, oh, this is not who I am and I've got to do something about it. The next thing is that depression can't live in isolation. Tell someone, talk to someone. Find someone in your inner circle, someone that you really trust, someone that who cares about you, somebody who knows the real you and not the current version of you who's not depressed, you know? So start there and start taking baby steps, you know, giving yourself some leeway. You know, it can be something as simple as getting up in the morning and like making your bed, having some breakfast. And if that's all that you accomplished today, awesome. Because maybe the day before you couldn't do that, you know, because when you're really depressed, it's hard for some people to even get out of bed or have the desire. They roll over and they cover themselves up, you know, Mm. because it's like this massive blanket that just covers over their body. So, you know, giving yourself that credit, you know, giving yourself the flexibility, being kind to yourself. A lot of self-compassion is a great place to start. But telling someone is a great start. Not so much because we want them to run out and do something and fix us, but then it's just about acknowledgement. Mm. Like once I tell you, hey, I'm struggling, Zach, with depression, now it's no longer a secret, right? Because you now know. And it's a great sort of catalyst to start doing something different. Definitely. And it could be all little tiny things, going for a walk, you know, picking up a hobby. There's all sorts of things that you can start to do to kind of mitigate those symptoms. If they're severe and it's like, you're having thoughts of suicide, you definitely want to talk to someone. There's warm lines out there. Now you can call, you know, the National Warm Line Center and get some talk. You could just talk to someone Mm -hmm. just to talk. And you could talk about as much or as little as you want. That's that's okay. Definitely. What are some of the most common issues, problems other than Mm -hmm. depression that you see people face when they come see you? Besides depression, it's typically anxiety, A lot of it has to do with decision-making processes. I can't tell you how many people come to me with transition in their life. I've worked with people who are in different stages of their life. I have a gentleman I'm working with currently who he's about to retire, and he's been a doctor for 50 years of his life. So that's all that he knows. And so here it is. You know, This is going to be, in his mind, his last year of 
serving his community as a, as a medical doctor and he's scared to death. And the idea of him retiring is this idea of a flower wilting and then dying. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, big changes is oftentimes things I see a lot. And from that, it sort of evokes these other feelings. So he's been struggling with, you know, anxiety because he just, you know, he's scared. Yeah, I want to go into anxiety. How would you define anxiety? Yeah, it's a fear of loss of control, really. So what can that feel like? Is it different for everybody? Well, I mean, it, there's obviously degrees of it. Some are going to be more severe. To, right. Like panic attack would be essentially the feeling of having a heart attack when essentially it's a really severe version of anxiety that people can experience all the way down to sweaty palms, butterflies in the stomach. If you're doing something new for the first time, you're kind of nervous about it, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to a new place that you've never been before. Or you're talking in front of a crowd of people that oftentimes stirs anxiety. You know, those symptoms can kind of come up, and that's mild stuff. Anxiety you're supposed to have. Like, yeah. I tell people this all the time. If we lived a life without anxiety, we'd be in a lot of trouble. You know, where anxiety gets us in trouble is when it happens in places it shouldn't happen or when it happens at such a degree where it keeps us from functioning. You know, like without anxiety, you know, you would cross the street and not care about the car that's coming at you, yeah. right? But you got to see that there's danger there and have some sense to do something about it. You know, but if you think about anxiety this way, and this is kind of a different way of looking at it, I tell people when you're feeling anxious, it's because something important's about to happen. I mean, think about that for a second. If you were about to take a final and you're in college yeah. and you're really anxious about it, I would say that's pretty important. Definitely. Can anxiety come in just like a random time though? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Cause I've definitely had instances where it's like, it's like for all of a sudden, just like, it gets like hard to breathe. I get super foggy headed, mm -hmm. but I've, I've struggled with anxiety for sure. Especially in high school. Yeah. There's like definitely social anxiety. Like whenever I was in big crowds, like it, I would just like freeze up and yep. I wouldn't be able to talk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there was just no words in my head mm -hmm. whatsoever. So, I mean, I get it. So what happens when you struggle with anxiety and like there's really nothing there though? Well, generally there is and it might yeah. just not be something you see. Yeah. Something triggers it. Mm. You know what I mean? So for the most part, you know, most times than not, there's a trigger. Now, what I typically do is I tell people, let's work backwards. Yeah. So let's think about the time where you felt that panic in the crowd. Right. right. And all those people around. And then let's walk backwards. And let's what happened before that. And then before that. And then before that. And somewhere along that journey, there's a chance that you're going to find what we think is a trigger. It could even start that day. Like, let's say you know that you're going to a pep rally or something like that. In sure. School, right? Yeah. And you know that that's going to be a lot of people and you don't like big crowds. Right. So you're already kind of feeling that way in the morning, that butterfly symptom in the stomach. Mm. Right? And you're like, oh, God, I'm going to dread this, you know, yeah. and I'm going to go and see this. And then you start to have this conversation in your head, like, what if this happens? And your mind starts to automatically try to draw conclusions because, again, it's about the fear of loss of control, right? Mm, yeah. So what do I do? I let my mind race so I can try to get in front of it, right? Mm -hmm. What if this? What if that? What if this, right? All of that yeah. racing thoughts, all those kinds of patterns of thinking, just they gaslight the anxiety, but we think somehow they're going to help us. And what they really do is they, they harm us. They cause us to feel more than we have to. 
How about anxiety when you're just like not doing what you're supposed to be doing? Say mm-hmm. you're just being lazy that day and you're just, you know, you're just sitting on the couch watching Netflix, eating a bunch of junk food. And like, can you get anxiety because you feel like you don't have like a purpose anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been there before too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whatever that conversation that kind of that you have with yourself in your mind yeah. can generate essentially any emotion. Any emotion. And I tell people like a great way to sort of test this theory, because a lot of times people will say, well, I don't buy I don't buy in that. Okay, well, get really mad. Can you get really mad right now? Uh, I could. I'm not going to, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not easy to do when somebody asks you to, right? right but yeah. something has to happen, and then you start to have to have a conversation in your head, right? You can't just get mad. Like, you could, mm-hmm. right? But you would have to probably do a bunch of things. I'd to have get... to scream. Yeah, yeah or, or something would have to happen, right? Exactly. So it's not that easy to do. So something along the lines triggers that. If you're laying on the couch, you know, eating Cheetos, watching Netflix, and you're like, one more show, one more show... You're probably telling yourself in your head, shoot, I probably be, should be doing this. I'm kind yeah. of procrastinating because I'm really afraid of doing this task over here because this makes me kind of anxious. And so I'm going to try to control how I feel about that by sitting here and doing nothing. Mm. But what it's doing is it's not working. So in spite of me trying to procrastinate right, or avoid, it's actually causing me to feel anxious in spite of that. Exactly. How about addiction? Mm-hmm. What is addiction to you and how can people you know, they're struggling with addiction, how can they overcome that or suppress it? Well, the first thing I want to kind of put out about addiction is like nobody wakes up in the morning and decides, I want to ruin my life and become an addicted person. So that is the first thing I want to say. You know, people who get addicted oftentimes find themselves either in situations where trauma's related or they're trying to avoid something and so it's a way for them to try to cope or it can be something that's medically driven. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with athletes who were, you know, professional athletes and, and they would get injured on the playing field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Doc gives them some medication to help mitigate the pain so they can get back on that field again to keep playing and yeah. performing at their best. And, you know, that turns into a little more medication, a little more medication. And some of these things are so powerful that they become really dependent on it. And then they think they need it when in fact they don't. And they find themselves in those addicted patterns. So addiction is very nefarious. It's a very, very insidious type of disease. It's not something like you wake up one day and just have. Yeah, It's a slow burn, so to speak. And that's why a lot of people who become addicted don't realize they're addicted because the consequences come on, at least for the most part, very slowly. Yeah. For sure. And it, it's a slow, progressive thing over a long period of time. So what do you do with your patients that are their addicts? Mm-hmm. What's the approach to get them to stop? Well, you know, that's a great question. So a lot of times, again, it's really understanding where they're at and are they ready for some change. So I listen a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm listening for change language. I want to hear as they're talking to me that they're ready to change. The old mentality about addiction was that they had to hit rock bottom in order for someone to want to stop. That's the old kind of way of thinking. And that, in fact, is not necessarily true. It's really when the person begins to see that what's going on in their life is really harming them. 
yeah. and that they don't want to live that way anymore and they're ready to make some changes. And sometimes that comes in consequences. Like sometimes that's where you see shows like Intervention where they mm-hmm. sit around and write a letter to their family member and kind of lay the law, so to speak. Those are more severe cases, but sometimes it's just like, I don't want to wake up in the morning and feel like shit. Yeah. I don't want to wake up in the morning and, and regret what I did last night because I can't remember it. Mm. You know, I tied on one on with the boys after work on a Friday night, and I'm just getting tired of that feeling. Yeah. Well, I think what happens a lot is people will stop. They'll stop for a couple of days, and then they realize it's it's just better with it at the end of the day. Like, life was better when I was doing this drug, but really they just had to get through that first Maybe it's just a couple of days or maybe it's like three weeks and then it would kind of go back to normal. Then they would kind of, you know, level out. But that first part is always really, really hard. Yeah. That's because that's the part of addiction. That's the insidious part is yeah. we're only seeing half the story. So we're seeing like when I drink, I'm more sociable and I, yeah. I can get along with people more. Yeah, but then I'm getting picked up for public drunkenness or my girlfriend is getting mad at me and she's locking me out of the house or, you know, so they only tell half the story. They don't only they only see the good stuff, in other words, because there's generally some consequences. And again, they don't have to be big ones like prison and things of that nature. But there can be some consequences, whether it's physical or social or the liking. You know, they can maybe feel bad about themselves the next day because they don't remember what they did. A lot of times the the excuse is it helps me with my anxiety Mm -hmm. or it helps me be more social. Do you think like marijuana and alcohol, maybe there's a couple other drugs out there, I'm not sure. Do you think they do help with anxiety? In the short run, absolutely. In the long run, no, though. No, because again, and I'm going to generalize here, so it's not every person, but in my experience, I don't see people using those substances long-term and managing anxiety. What they're doing is they're putting a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. See, coping with anxiety is actually coping with it. And so what they're doing is they're kind of numbing out or they're reducing their physiological response to anxiety by using a substance to do that. And that's not dealing with the problem at hand. Mm. So like, sure, in the beginning, it certainly does work, but eventually a lot of these substances can cause anxiety. So like long-term marijuana use I've seen in many cases causes more anxiety than it mitigates, you know, especially as a person uses longer and longer and longer. Same with alcohol. You know, alcohol helps me with my depression. Yeah, in the beginning, mm-hmm. until it doesn't. Exactly. Because in small doses, alcohol will make you feel kind of more sociable, right? Yeah. But it's actually a depressant. So when you mm. use more than you should, you're going to feel more depressed. Definitely. So again, it's those half-truths that we tell ourselves to sort of justify a behavior that isn't really up to snuff with our value system as a person, but it's hard to do the other thing, you know, because it's easier to just have a drink and then feel like you're Norm from Cheers sitting around the yeah. bar. I'm probably dating myself on you here a little bit. <laughs> but versus like, you know, staying away from the alcohol altogether and trying to find another way to deal with that anxiety mm-hmm. as a whole. So I can not necessarily never have anxiety, but just be better at dealing with it shows up. Definitely. Uh, do you think working out is probably the best 
I guess, medication for anxiety, depression, all those common problems? Do you think that's one of the top ones? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, to, and what's the science behind that? Yeah, so it's really great. So when you look at the research that's done, and this has been replicated a few times, and replication is really important to understand about science. Like you can do a study, and then if you can't replicate it, it's really not a study that's valuable, yeah. right? They've replicated on several occasions to show that exercise and nutrition can be as effective as medication for people with anxiety and depression, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to expand even in some other areas, like potentially in the areas of schizophrenia, which is a thought disorder and, and such. We're really starting to expand as the science gets stronger and the research tools get stronger. We're starting to look beyond that. But Harvard Medical School has done countless studies in this particular area and showed how someone who's able to exercise and eat well can feel essentially the same effects as somebody who's taking a pharmacological substance for a period of time and have a better outcome. The other thing about it too, though, again, the caveat is it's it's hard. Yeah. So you got right. So <laughs> so it isn't the first thing. I mean, it's easier in reality. It's easier to just go and take a pill in the morning and take one before bed Absolutely, than it yeah. is to really kind of change a lot of aspects with your life. So what I do in my coaching practice is I start really really slow. Yeah. Change one thing, let it go on for a couple of weeks. Change another thing because I tell people, look, you didn't get depressed overnight wasn't this is like a switch, right? right? And anxiety, unless you're having a panic attack, anxiety kind of creeps on you the same way. Mm. It's slow, you know, it will have sure. days where it's a little more severe, but generally seeking kind of creeps along the floor. Definitely. So we want to kind of approach it that same way. If a person's able to, and they're, let's just say, able to tolerate those symptoms of depression and anxiety long enough to be able to take that approach, then that's the approach I take with them. Love that. Change something small. Let's do that. Let's build some success. Let's build some confidence around your success. Mm -hmm. And then once like you start to feel in control again, then you're like, wow, if I can change that, you know, if I can do this one thing and just drinking an extra glass of water a day, you know, or just taking my plate and we're going to do the 80 20 rule. So we're going to just do this, or I'm just going to get up and I'm going to walk to and from the mailbox. And when I do that, I'm just going to walk 10 steps past the mailbox the next yeah. day. Like little things like that can have a major, major impact. In fact, can I tell you a quick story? Sure. Okay, so years ago, I was running this inpatient mental health clinic, and mm -hmm. I was working with a group of folks who suffered from what you would call major depressive disorder. It's a chronic version of depression, meaning that they've had it for a long time, and many of these patients were not getting better. Right. Yeah. So we were trying to come up with all sorts of, you know, looking at the research that's out there, trying to come up with therapeutic interventions. And at this time, this is kind of early on in my career in mental health. I, you know, I started to see these studies on exercise. So I said to my boss, I said, look, I got this kind of crazy idea. What if I took our patients on a walk? And we're going to do this like experiment, but make it fun for them. So we did, right? So we got approval for this, this experiment. And what we did is says, hey, we're going to do an experiment together, not on you, but with each other. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you fill out this questionnaire and you're going to answer some basic questions about how you're feeling right now. Mm. Okay. And then I want you to identify one person in the group that you see that's changed the most. Over this experience, right? Yeah. So that's all they had to do. It was like four or five questions, really simple. 
we did this thing real quick. And then I said, all right, guys, come with me. So we went outside. We walked down the street. It was, you know, maybe four or five blocks in total walking around. It was a nice spring day. I remember it was beautiful out. Birds were chirping and they were walking out, you know, walking, doing their thing. Yeah. And then we came back and then we did that same thing again. So we did pre and post. And, mm. and you know, what's different now about yourself than before? And who's that person that's the most changed? Right. Once they started to look at that, the thing that we started to see was that they were feeling better. And they were starting to see improvements in each other. Yeah, it's that easy. It's a very simple thing, right? Now, yeah. does that mean it sticks and it stays? Well, probably not. You have to continue to build on that. But it shows you how quickly someone can begin to feel better versus sometimes medication, which may take well, yeah. weeks. I mean, it's the medication. It's the constant dopamine hits because we're just playing a dopamine game yeah, all day. That's all it between, is. Between you know, the Netflix, the social media, all the food that we eat, the yep. drugs that we consume, mm -hmm. it's just dopamine all day. And then it's being trapped indoors, not sunlight, yep. not exercising, not moving your body, not getting enough sleep. All that put in the one, I mean, yeah, you're going to have some problems there. Yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah, so. I give us some time and you'll see a whole litany of research coming out with social media and gaming yeah. and video games and how they're designed to do this dopamine hit. And it's probably going to be harmful. I'm, I'm sure of it, in fact. Yeah. Is there a is there a way to like detox dopamine? Do you ever like recommend that for your patients? Absolutely. And how do you do that? Best way. Get outside in the woods. Right. Best way. Just like just no like phone, that. just no go phone. camp outside in the woods. Yeah. I mean, you don't even have to go camping. Ideally, yeah. it would be great if you can take longer periods. Yeah. But you can take like 20, 30 minutes and just get outside in the woods or mm. near the woods or somewhere peaceful away from distractions. Yeah. And just let your body do what it's designed to do, which is to get you back to homeostasis. You know, so it's kind of, you know, it's like detoxing from any substance or drug, right? You kind of put that stuff aside for a period of time yeah i actually do that quite a bit like it's kind of like meditation that i do like i'll leave my phone just go on a walk or i'll go to like by the water just sit by the water and it's crazy how clear you get so fast and a lot of times i'll, I'll like meditate i'll just relate to myself and i'll pray and i've i never feel like more like myself and it's so easy to just know exactly who I am and what I want and my desires and everything, dude. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. Like, it just takes, like, 20 minutes a day. Yep. Like, ditch your phone, go yep. on a walk, go by the water, just go where you feel like you the most. Yep. And you get so much clarity on life. Yep. You need 20 to 30 minutes every day. And, of course, if there's some sunlight involved, then that's even better. Yeah, there's a ton of research on just showing those little periods help tremendously. And, of course, consistency is a big part of that, of too. Of course. But again, you got to remember, like our brains are wired to constantly be sort of scanning our environment. And now we have these amazing tools called cell phones and social media and all these other things that are, mm -hmm. you know, pretty amazing things. But what they do do is they command our attention and they distract us a lot of times from what we're doing. And so, you know, when was the last time you checked your like usage on Facebook or Instagram or something? Yeah, right, 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 right. But <laughs> yeah. it's a good, sometimes it's a good gut check, right? It is, go, yeah. Holy cow, I can't believe like mm -hmm. in the course of a week, I've given up this much time of my 20 hours. Yeah. It could be, right? Yeah. And it could be 10 minutes here. I mean, that's why you see yeah. all these memes of like people on their toilet, you know, like on the phone forever and their legs go numb. It's exactly. like they're, they're memes for a reason because it's actually happening to people. <laughs> but, you know, when you take the time to get away from those dopamine driven things, it helps your brain get back to homeostasis. So yeah. that's a great, easy way to start. 
you know, because you're just allowing your, your nervous system to kind of get back to where it should be. Yeah. Deeper question. Where is your faith at? And does faith correlate with these things that we're talking about? Yeah. Great question. So where's my faith at personally, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a good question. It's still kind of a discovery thing for me. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. Yeah. So very, very strict religion, very unforgiving of minor sins, if you will. And then I kind of got away from religion when I joined the military because that kind of changed how I saw the world yeah. and what I thought about what I was told in religion. It was difficult for me to see like sort of a place that you would call godless for mm. lack of a better word. Like how can a God exist when these atrocities can happen in front of you? So there was a period of time where I kind yeah. of really was in this dark space and then I became sort of angry and, and unforgiving of God himself and my own faith. Mm. And I just stayed away from it. So even when the subject would come up, I would get really angry on it. Now I'm to a place where I'm kind of reconnecting with that piece of my life. Nice. <clears throat> you know, this tattoo that's on my arm, it's part of actually my spirituality and my faith. It's a place that I fall, find solace. It's the early mornings in the woods where mm. you kind of see that steam or, or fog kind the of... The sun like, coming through the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything, the birds aren't even awake yet. Mm. And it's just that kind of period of silence. You yeah. Know, where you're just connected to whatever that may be. Right. It just makes me think about that part. And so I'm growing in that area. I'm nice. not, I'm a work in progress. I'm far yeah. from where I'd like to be. Yeah. But I'm definitely a man of faith. I just mm. have to learn what that is for me. Yeah. I have to rediscover it, which to me is an exciting problem. Yeah. For me, it's to surrender. It's to surrender to the higher power and let go and take the weight off my shoulders and put it on his. That's probably like the biggest thing that I love that I've gotten from it. You know, like what is faith? Like I, yeah. faith is surrendering. Surrender. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's, for sure. that's where I'm at with it. Yeah. Talk to me about your military journey, you know, where that started, what made you want to do that? Some of the experiences that you went through in, in sure. that journey. Yeah. Um, so my goal to join the military was a couple of things. One, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do straight out of high school. But the bigger component was that it was always something I wanted to do because, you know, since a kid, I, I sort of fantasized about being like my family members. I have a long-standing history of military service dating all the way back to the Civil War. So essentially, you know, in my family, I've had either uncles or cousins or some male in the family who've served in every conflict since then. Yeah. So I kind of felt like it was like a rite of passage, something I had to do, something I wanted to do. I had an opportunity to go to college straight out of school, but I was like, <laughs> I didn't think that that was for me. And I wanted to just see if this was a good path for me. My plan was always to join the army. And my parents did not want me to. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course not. Yeah, because of course they were afraid. And of course I wanted to be a soldier. I didn't yeah. want to just have a regular job. I wanted to fight. I wanted a fighting type of job. I wanted to actually be an army ranger. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was my goal. I was training for that sort of unofficially. I shouldn't say like in any program, but just in high school, I was kind of training on my own, just kind of reading books about the army rangers and what they would do, talking to some people who are former army rangers and trying to learn from them and then just go out and do this training on my own. Right. Well, my parents were not going to have any of that. So what I did was, you know, typical teenage boy is I found an end around. I went to the air force and 
I said, hey, what do you guys have for fighting jobs? You know, mm. and they're like, well, we don't have a whole lot of fighting jobs. We got these couple of jobs. You know, here, here's what they are. And they, you know, show back this like video of these guys. Pararescue men is what they were called. And I was there with my friend Chris. And he's like, oh, man, that's awesome. These guys are jumping on helicopters and jumping on airplanes sure. and like doing all this combat stuff and like rescuing people. You know, and the video was like, pararescue the guys that save seals and rangers and like what these guys are even tougher than those guys <laughs> they save them when they're in trouble right. we got to do that you know of course you know typical mindset at that age so we sign up for it and my parents were like yeah well the air force that sounds okay and you know i told my mom like i'll be a medic and she's like well that's a respectable job and you can get out and be a doctor or a nurse sure. or something like that. i didn't tell her like in what fashion I would be a medic. <laughs> I left that Work part around. out. Yeah, yeah, because I was 17, and at that time they had to sign you in. Yeah. So I was like, if I tell them, they're probably not going to let me do that especially. Exactly. So I was like, well, I'm a medic, and so they signed me in and everything else. Well, long story short, we went in on a delayed enlistment program, meaning that you sign in at 17, and then you just wait till you graduate, and then you go to basic training, and then you start your training. Yeah. We had to do a very basic indoctrination kind of course with our recruiter just to see that you can do basic mile run, all those kinds of exercises and such, mm -hmm. just to make sure that you're ready to go off to the training course. Sure. So Chris and I do this, right? And then about a week before graduation, he actually passes away in a crazy, wow. crazy accident. He drowned in Lake Wall and Paul Pack with his oh, girlfriend wow. out there fishing one night a week before graduation. That's so crazy. imagine him and I are docked to go to basic training yeah. come in October. We're mm. graduating in June, right? And here it is now, like a week before graduation, and he goes up missing. Wow. Now this kid's a good swimmer. So yeah. like I leaned on him for swimming because like I was not a big swimmer. Dang. And he was a really good swimmer and they went missing. Wow. And eventually they found out what happened. They believe that his girlfriend, who was not a good swimmer, you know, she kind of tried to save herself because they fell out of the boat and it inadvertently drowned him and then drowned herself. Huh. That's what they believe has happened from the state Dang. police. Yeah. So, but it took a while to figure that out. So now I'm sitting there going, oh man, what do I do? I'm going solo. Do I leave here without that or do I just like abandon this idea altogether? So I decided like I'm going to go for it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and kind of try to honor my buddy. So that was kind of like the beginning portion of like my experience. Go off to basic training, do fine and basic training, go off to NDOC and then totally get my ass handed to me because those guys are just superhumans in yeah. my opinion. And I was not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I could do some of the training. I was able to do some of the physical fitness stuff. But when it came to like the water training and some of the other stuff, it was just way, way beyond me. So at that point, long story short, I had an opportunity to cross train. I could stay in the military, pick another career field that was opened sure. or available, mm -hmm. and then do the rest of my time that way or opt to get out. Yeah. So I said, no, I want, I'm in. I've already completed basic training. I'm going to do this. So at the time, there was like three jobs. One was like working in hotel management when I was like, hell no, that sounds pathetic. You know, who wants to do that? You know, just working in a hotel all day long. There was a tow tagger, so you can work in the morgue, you know, as bodies would come in or whatever, you would tag them and send them off for processing. And then an MP, cop. 
So I was like, well, duh, that's no brainer. At yeah. least he has a gun. You sure. know what I mean? So I'm going to take the cop job. And I, I signed up for the cop job, went right into the schoolhouse. I was only like kind of in, in like flying solo for a week or two. And then I went off to the, the schoolhouse for law enforcement. And then about, I think that was about eight weeks long. Six weeks into the eight weeks, these two guys walk in and say, hey, who likes dogs? So like, you know, four or five of us raise our hand and we're like, we do, right? <laughs> and they're like, all right, come with us guys, right? And like, we're in the middle of class. So we're like, oh, this is cool. We get the hell out of here for a couple of minutes, you know, and yeah. let's go check this out. So they have this like, and this is old school, man. We're talking early nineties. So they have this VHS tape, like an old school tape. And they put this tape in, in this TV, right? And they're like, watch this video. And it's like these guys with dogs doing all this stuff, jumping out of helicopters. No way. Dogs are jumping out of the cars and attacking people. And I'm like, what? that's pretty cool, man. Check that out. Yeah. Right. And so they show us the video and they're like, all right, so this is what we're looking to recruit for. We're looking for some dog handlers. Anybody interested in signing up for this? So I'm like, Psh, count me in. Right. So all six <laughs> or seven of us that were there at the time, we all raise our hand. They're like, all right, good. So we got some recruiting stuff to do. They gave us a bunch of tests. Our first test wasn't even with a real dog. It was with a bucket. Yeah. So it was a stainless steel, one gallon bucket how does that work <laughs> strangely enough it works but it's right. odd so it's this bu bucket you know imagine this big galvanized steel bucket and you have a leash and a choke chain attached to it and that's your dog so now you have to go around and like heal bucket oh that's a good little bucket you know and i think they did that just to mess with us but that was what we had to do we had to right. like heal the bucket and then call and then do these commands and march with the bucket and all these other things and then based on the way that we performed and then, of course, they looked at our service records to that point, you know, were we doing okay and through basing and such. Then we sure. get a slot. So yeah. I got a slot right off the bat, right into canine school as soon as I finished law enforcement school. So I pipelined right into it. And then went off and did that for a couple of months and then ground combat training school and then eventually got to my home duty station out in California. Nice. Where I, you know, was law enforcement for several years. Yeah. Can you tell the, <clears throat> the bomb story? Yeah, where was that again? So that was actually in the border of Iraq and yeah. Kuwait. So at the time we were after the Iraqi war, the first Gulf War, many of us stayed behind to kind of manage those areas to make sure that Saddam wouldn't come back down to Kuwait and attack. Right. So it was part of the expeditionary forces job to basically station on the southern part of Iraq as well as in Kuwait to make sure he doesn't you know, play any funny business. So mm. it was right after the main campaign. You know, I'm getting out there. I just get my orders to get deployed, and it's on my first deployment. And I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm straight out of school. <laughs> like, I had a dog for a couple of months. Yeah. You know, we barely know each other. And they're like, all right, you know, you're going to get your rotational deployment. I'm like, okay, whatever. And this was just after an incident that occurred in, I think it was like 95, 96, where one of our buildings were blown up over there by a terrorist attack. So they drove up a giant truck, detonated the thing, and killed like 100 people. So now they were starting to you know, up the forces to go back over there again because there was now some some attacking that was happening on our bases. I get deployed and I get over there and our job was to really just clear route. So, you know, if we're not doing patrol work on the base, we're going to different places and making sure that when equipment gets moved or supplies get moved from point A to point B, that those right. routes were clear. So my first job is getting out on a route, you know, and, and here I am fresh out of school, know nothing about it. And they're like, all right, just go find some bombs. I'm like, 
okay, how do you do that? And go they're like, find some bombs. Yeah, they're like, just go make sure there's no bombs out there. I'm like, out where? They're like, out there. I'm like, well, how do you do that? They're like, well, I don't know. You're the dog handler. Aren't you supposed to know? I'm like, well, I trained in the, like an urban environment and I trained in the woods. I never trained in the desert and I don't know where I'm going to find bombs. They're like, well, they're out there somewhere, we think. I'm like, okay, so I'm just making this kind of stuff up, you know, right. like, it's like you have some basic training, but we never really trained in a desert environment at mm -hmm. that time. So I get my dog, I start walking out the, you know, the area. And at this time I had a 30 foot leash. So imagine a leash that's like 30 foot long. It's tied around my waist so I can operate my weapon. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm Johnny Badass. I'm going to go out there and just try to do something here, right? Yeah. I send my dog out and he starts doing his quartering, which is kind of going from side to side looking sure. for a scent. They're trained for nine different odors to smell. So he's just looking for any type of explosive powder. It can even be ammunition. Like he can find a an AK-47 roundling on the ground. Yeah. So he's quartering, he's quartering, he's quartering. Nothing seems to really be happening. I'm kind of getting bored. And at the same time, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't mm. know where I'm going. Right? right. So I'm walking and I'm walking and walking. And then he sits. So I'm like, oh, man, it's really hot out here. Like, why is he sitting? Right. Now, mind you, that's how the dog responds. Right. Right. But I didn't think of that at the time because I'm like, you know, green and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> it's hot out here and he's probably just being lazy. Right. So I go up to him. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, seek. And I send him out for another thing. So he, he gets up, he moves a little bit, comes back and he sits. I'm like, huh. huh, that's odd. You know, I'm like, and I'm looking around, you know, I'm looking around all over the place. I don't see anything. But right. I mean, there's, tr of course, trash and stuff everywhere. It's like a disaster over there. Mm. So I'm looking around, I don't see anything. So I'm like, mm, nobody, come, come, seek. And he's looking at me like, I'm not going anywhere. And here <laughs> right we are. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're having like this eye contact, like almost like a person to dog visual argument. Imagine like dog and, you know, human looking at each other, arguing like, get your ass out there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. So finally it dawns on me being the dumbass green person. You know, I'm like, oh, maybe he found something. So I don't <laughs> You know, duh. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, dummy. That's what I did, right? right? So he's like, I did my job, so reward me. So I'm looking down on the ground looking for ammunition. That's what I'm thinking it is. Like, oh, maybe, you know, a couple of rounds fell on the ground or something like that or an ex expelled something or other, you know, because he, he can smell like parts per million. So like literally yeah. a fingerprint. If you took a fingerprint and touched a, you know, a round, he can smell the powder on your finger in that way. So I was thinking, looking for something small and I started to see what looked like wires tied together and garbage around. So I didn't think nothing of it at first until he refused to move. So finally I decided to call back to EOD and EOD has two options. They can send a guy up in what they call the snork outfit, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think there was a movie back. Yeah, I think I can imagine it. Yeah, they, I forget the name of the movie, but there was a movie about EOD guys where they kind of dressed in this snork outfit, it's like a big bubble head with yeah. this bomb suit, and they can come out and look at the thing itself, or they can send out, we used to call it Johnny Five. Like Ghostbusters? Yeah, it's like a <laughs> Ghostbusters thing, yeah. yeah. Or they could send out a little robot to investigate as sure. well. So they didn't send the robot. They sent out the person in the snork outfit. So the guy comes out. Now I'm thinking EOD, right? These are like professionals. They're going to do all this like high tech, cool stuff, right? Yeah. Because we were always told that that's what they do. He comes out with a, basically a stick, a metal stick, and he just starts poking around in the ground. And I'm like, <laughs> like that doesn't look very professional, and it doesn't look very technologically advanced either. Or it's safe, a, right? Or safe, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, he's just poking around the ground. And he's like... 
Yep, yep, yep. So he reaches down and grabs what I saw before. I thought it was just a bundle of wire, and he grabs them and he pulls them up out of the ground. Well, here comes up four rounds up out of the earth. He, like, literally pulled on this wire. As he pulled them up, these rounds kind of surfaced out of the sand, and I'm like, holy shit, they're big tank rounds. Yeah. And I'm in talking big 80-pound tank rounds. And he's like, oh, yeah, you found one. And I was like, oh, shit, this is real. This is not a game. This isn't training. You know, yeah, this is yeah. the real deal. I mean, it was just, like, so primitive. He just literally cut them off with wires, and then he, like, threw them over his shoulder, and he's like, all right, boys, <laughs> we got a couple. Right. You know, loaded them up on the truck, and then he took it off later, and I got to watch the demolition of these things. Mm. So they stack them up in, a like, a they basically dig a pit, and then they stack them up, and they load it up with C4, and then they blow that stuff up so they can't be reused. And when that stuff got blown up, I was like, holy, the size of the crater that it left after it blew was massive. And I wow. thought to myself, I was standing on that stuff with my dog. So things got real, real quick. So when you were standing on it, did you think it could have been like a bomb, and if like you moved, like it would have exploded? I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't think of that at all. Because oh, really? yeah, for some reason, I just. I guess I just assumed my dog was tired and hot. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't paying attention to his response like I should have been. Yeah. It's a typical rookie move. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they tell you what to look for, and I'm thinking, no way I'm going to find something out here. Like, mm. there's no, there's nothing here. Sure. Like, I didn't see people around at that place that That's we were crazy. located. It was just all abandoned stuff and blown up stuff. So, like, yeah. there was nothing there. Why would there be something like that here? Yeah. So, yeah. I guess, you know, obviously it got real, real fast. And mm. obviously anything at that point, after that point, I took as, as a very serious thing. But I think it took that instance for me to recognize that this was not training any longer. Yeah, it was a real sobering. Yeah, it was a real sobering moment. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So let's take it back to uh, present day. Sure. You're in this life coaching thing. How long have you been doing that? So coming up on two years in October. Two years. Yep. And uh, where do you see that going? Uh, Good question. I'm not sure. I'm kind of letting it sort of materialize in the way that it's kind of going. My big thing is just to try to serve as many people as I can and then see how this kind of gets put together. It's not something I've seen before, so I don't see a lot of life coaches who do fitness and nutrition as a component of their work. So I'm kind of allowing sort of the need to sort of drive the machine, if that makes sense, you know, as, as it kind of unfolds naturally i'm just kind of building it that way now, do you have like a target audience for this or is it everybody i mean the target audience is obviously people who are open to utilizing nutrition and fitness as a component of life coaching sure. so obviously that would be a piece but i'm it's not limited to particular demographic of a person it's just people who are willing to utilize those things to kind of create some meaningful change because the goal really here zach is you know i don't want to be one of those you know sign up for this program and for (laughs) 39.99 and in 20 days but then after that you feel like crap again like this Mm. is lifelong change and i tell people when when you come work with me i take this work really serious i want you to have the best version of your life that you want to live and i want you to be as serious about it as i am Mm. and when people kind of see that in your approach, I think people naturally respond differently. And those that aren't really looking for that, which is okay, mm. they don't. They don't sign up with me. That's no harm, no foul. Definitely. But those that do, 
you know, they've been with me for a period of time. And in the beginning, it's just like anything. You're, you're with them more often. And as time goes on, they don't need you quite as much so that you're more sort of on the sidelines, if you will. Or you're meeting with them less often so that they're kind of more of a check-in. And that seems to be really, really effective. It's about really kind of empowering them to be in charge. I don't want them to be dependent on me. I want them to utilize me as a tool Definitely. and then put me on the shelf. So what... Like, why, why do you do this? What lights you up about it? Man, it's just people. It's just as simple as that. It's yeah. like finding a puzzle and trying to come up with a solution. Mm. That's why I love it, because people are complex and simple all at the same time and uniquely different than one another. What do you think, your client, what's the biggest thing that they get from working with you? I think they get somebody who's really compassionate and really driven to want to see the best version of them. Mm. Somebody who's willing to go the extra mile and it's not a paycheck for me. Yeah. This is a, it's about creating a lifestyle. So right. how can you put money or, mm. or other monetary things on a lifestyle? So they see someone I would like to think they see someone who's really compassionate, empathetic, but also excited. Like Definitely. really just want to get in there and get your hands dirty and let's do this together. Exactly. And just real open. Definitely. How would how would someone reach out to you? Yeah, so they can reach out to me either through Instagram, Facebook, my email, which is jjkamora at gmail.com. They can call me on my phone. I mean, yeah. there's like a million ways. I'm old school. You can write me a letter if you really, <laughs> really want to do that. <laughs> Might be good practice. You say your address on here? Yeah, I don't know if I want to do that, but you could if you wanted to. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you could definitely reach what, out what to me. What is your Instagram? So it's jkamora. Okay. Yep. K-A-M-O-R-A. Yeah. yeah. Jay Kamora. You'll find me on there. And that's where I do a lot of my postings. That seems to draw the most, you know, responses. Definitely. A couple more questions. What's the first thing you think people notice about you? I think it's, well, this is what I hear. So I'm thinking this is what it is. That I'm always smiling and happy. Yeah, um, I can see that. I always hear that from people. Man, it doesn't matter what's going on. You're always smiling. yeah. yeah. It could be in the middle of a terrible workout. It can be in the middle of whatever. I'm just always smiling. And I don't I don't know. I guess I'm just grateful for every little moment and it's just who I am. I I love I love life. Life mm. is amazing to me. Even the hard parts of life is just amazing. You can grow so much in those times. Yeah. So that's what I think it would be. What are you most grateful for? The opportunity. Just the opportunity of life. Yeah, just the opportunity of life. Like every day waking up with a new opportunity mm. and today i have an opportunity to make it anything that i want it to be yeah and there's going to be parts that are going to be super great and there's going to be parts that don't go my way and that's okay but what do i learn in those opportunities that help forge me to be a stronger healthier person that's the part that i think is amazing that every day you know god willing <laughs> yeah. i get to wake up tomorrow and then get to do it again and it's so amazing how something so simple of a mindset shift like that has such power Definitely. like i get to wake up tomorrow and i get to do it again yeah what do you want to experience most in this life i think the biggest thing is to try to impact as many people as i can and everywhere i want to reach out and there shouldn't be a barrier so whether it's physical barrier or just you know whatever i want to be able to reach as many people as i can for as long as i'm on earth yeah if you could uh, give one message to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Be yourself. Just be yourself. Yeah. It's the best gift you can give yourself and everyone else around you is being yourself. 
I love it, man. Sweet. So, uh, yeah, let's wrap up, man. Thanks so much for coming out. It's been yeah, it's been a, it's been fun, dude. Yeah, it's I learned awesome. a lot from the you know the therapy stuff, from depression, addiction to your background. It's been awesome, man. And, yeah, uh, thanks for having me, dude. You're a hell of a dude. Yeah, you thanks, really are. man. Looking forward to uh, going on a lot more journeys and adventures with you. Absolutely, can't wait for the yeah. next one. Sweet. All right, man. We'll sign off. All right.